uh, that person has. And sometimes, if you're like me, um, well, sometimes you would be just quite happy if the other person just forget about that person. I'll give you an example. We, we uh, watched a movie in our house called A Walk to Remember. Now, I don't know, has anybody seen that particular movie? It's a, teen it's a teenage love story. And basically, it's about this young girl. She's, uh, she's very smart, kind. She, she's presented as a very, uh, she's a very, um, very quick-witted person, but she's, she's presented as a little bit socially backward, partly because of her faith. She's in a very religious family, and, and um, the, the, the guy that sort of ends up being crossing paths with her, you can kind of sense that there's an attraction there, but he is a very arrogant, self-centered, egotistical person. Now, in my perspective, I mean, there's, in some ways, it's funny, I found myself kind of, as the movie progressed, you're kind of cheering, cheering these people on, but at the beginning of the movie, I thought, well, if that was my daughter, I'd be very much like the, the father in the story, saying, have a good life, take off, find somebody else, because this is not the person that you're meant for. So where am I going with this? I don't know whether you've ever had the Bible presented to you as a love story. The Bible is probably the most um, un under-celebrated, but the most dramatic love story the world has ever been presented. I'll, show you, I'll just kind of break this down for you. If you've ever, uh, if you've ever thought of the, the elements of a love story, events bringing two characters together, God creates the human race and wants communion with them. There's a villain. As in A Walk to Remember, you had the friends that were trying to keep these two people apart and the father that was also trying to keep them apart. In the Bible, we see there's a villain, a corrupted angel, who's working tirelessly to keep the two separated and to keep people blind to God's love. Unrequited love. Humankind rejects God, doesn't even recognize that God loves them or that God's even there. The pursuit... God pursues humankind and makes an agreement with them, but sometimes they still can't see it. There's a hero, Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to pay a debt that humans can't pay and to bridge a gap that otherwise couldn't be bridged. Communion with God is possible forever, and there's a happily ever after. We're promised a future together with God forever. He will never leave us nor will he ever forsake us. All the elements of a beautiful love story. And the neat thing about this love story is that we're, you may think, well, if you've watched a love story, I've never been part of a love story. Man, like how come stuff like that doesn't happen to me? But the reality is, is that you are all part of this love story. Everybody in the human race is part of this love story. And you are the center of that love story. Jesus came for you, and he loves you, um, and the story's not over yet. Recently, uh, we've had Bible studies. Um, uh, home studies were focused on a particular book that was called The Good and Beautiful God, 
And over the previous winter, uh, I think pretty much, I don't think, I don't know that all the home groups were doing this book, but I know our group was doing it in Smith Falls, and I know that other groups were doing it. And uh, in that particular book, written by James Bryan Smith, um, in the later chapters of the book, there was something that struck me, and it was a story that the author shared. And it was about his sister. She attended church her entire life, but never understood why Jesus had to die. And why he died so gruesomely. It made her question the very nature of God. Was God cruel or sadistic? Why did Jesus need to come into the world in the first place? The answers to these questions are at the heart of Easter, which we celebrated a couple weeks ago, so I'm a little bit late. But that's kind of, this isn't really an Easter message, but it is about Easter. And this is what I would like to explore this morning. Now, there's lots of reasons that are given why Jesus came into this world in the Bible. One was presented at the very end of uh, the story of Zacchaeus. And, uh, and uh, he, he said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And there's other things. Um, he, it says in the Bible in John 1.18 that he came to make his father known, his father in heaven known. Um, we know that he came to fulfill God's promises, promises that he made to Adam, to Abraham, to David, and Mary, his mother. To, fill, to fulfill the law, Matthew 5, 17, 18 says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So Jesus came to fulfill the law. And then in John 5, 22, 23, it says that... Um, he came to judge the world righteously. In addition, the Father judges no one instead. No one Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Anyone who does not honor the Son is certainly not honoring the Father who sent him. So, but these don't answer the question of why Jesus uh, died. And it's clear that one of the reasons why Jesus came, his purpose was to die. And I don't know whether you had questions like this sister. If you're not clear on why Jesus... I mean, we've, we talk about this in, this in the songs that we sing. And sometimes, if we've gone to church our whole life, we assume that people understand why Jesus came to die. Why did he have to die? And then why did he have to die in the way that he died? James Bryan Smith relayed in his book how his sister asked why, if God was all-powerful, why Jesus had to die at all. Why couldn't he just forgive us of any wrongdoings we had done and show us how to live better lives? Now, I am not a scholar, and I didn't get this from anybody else, but here's what I saw. I found four things, direct and indirect reasons, why God had to die. I mean, there's one reason, but I want to pull apart this, this into four things. And this is not a feel-good, this is not going to start off as a feel-good message. Because, but it, it's the truth. It has, we have to speak the truth. The first reason is humanity is spiritually corrupt. The Bible is clear about the spiritual condition of our world and the people in it. In the Old Testament, King David wrote 
about this in Psalms 14, 2 and 3, which says, The Lord looks down from the heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away, all have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. Now, some people might question, well, I know people that do good. Let me, let me continue. I will, I will get to that. Paul reiterates this in the New Testament by quoting David and reaffirming that nothing has changed. He says in Romans 3.10, as the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. Jeremiah 17.9 states, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Now, you may be thinking to yourself, as I have when I've read these verses, I know good people. They're good people. I know Kimby Bagora. She's helping people all the time. Uh, Andy, every time I turn around, I hear about how he's going to somebody's house and, and helping them out. Shannon Miller, wonderful mother, wonderful wife. I can point people out through this congregation that I think those are good people. And there's good people that are not in this church. So we know good people. So what, what is wrong with this picture? And the problem is, is that the standard by which we measure how good is, is flawed. Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned and falls short of God's glorious standard. See, there's a standard that God has. And it's not the same standard that we evaluate when we look at people around us. And it's a standard of perfection. So that's a problem. You and I, no matter how good we are, we can't measure up to that standard. There's no way we can do it. In Luke 18, 18, 19, we're told the story about a religious leader who approached Jesus with a critical question, a life-altering question. It appears that this man was confident in his spiritual situation, but that he needed some assurance. It says, once the religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, to which Jesus responded, he didn't answer the question at first, he said, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, only God is truly good. Did you catch that? Only God is good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother. Jesus started quoting all the commandments. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Now, I guess we could question whether that's really true, that he actually perfectly obeyed those commandments, but Jesus took him at that, and he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. So Jesus was getting right at the heart. He said, what is your spiritual heart condition? But the man heard this and became very sad, for he was very rich. He was in love with his wealth. His first love was not God at all. So, it would appear that the man didn't get the answer he was expecting. Jesus knew what this guy's heart condition was before answering the man's question. Jesus pointed out a problem with this question and made a truth statement at the same time. Jesus made it clear that, the, that only God is good, meaning that only God is righteous. 
In other words, if this man was calling Jesus good because he believed Jesus was God, then he was correct. However, if he thought people, human beings, could be righteous on their own by doing good things, then he was seriously wrong. Jesus already knew what the answer was and revealed that he was basing his righteousness, his perfection, and his goodness on his own good works, which was impossible. This religious leader would have undoubtedly been a stalwart citizen in his community and highly regarded by the people around him, but his own goodness was still missing the mark. I don't know whether you, anybody knows the group, Canadian Christian group called Down Here. Has anybody ever heard their songs? I, I like this group. It's a Canadian, Canadian Christian group. Mark Martel has been in the news a lot because of, uh, he has a, a unique voice and uh, a very particular style of singing, and it's identical to a very famous secular musician called uh, Freddie Mercury, who you might know as the lead singer of Queen. He lived a very uh, interesting life. Um, but Mark Martel and his... Uh, his bandmate, Jason Germain, wrote a song that really hit home with me, and I thought that it presented the human condition very, very well. And it, it almost, sometimes when I, I, I was reluctant, do I, do I share this or do I not? But I thought I will, um, because there's some things that it kind of hits on that are very current and um, that are very, I guess you could say, political but I don't think this is where they were going. Anyway, I'll just, I'll just read it to you. Uh, in the song, the song highlights our fallen nature and the difficulty that we have in recognizing it in ourselves. And it goes like this. There's got to be some reason for all this misery. A secret evil corporation somewhere overseas. They're pulling, things, pulling strings, arranging things. It's a conspiracy. What about the ones who shaped the course of history what if we petition for one grand apology? I'll write my prime minister, you write your president. Everybody's wondering how the world could get this way. If God is good, then how could it be filled with so much pain? It's not the age-old mystery we've made it out to be. Yes, there's a problem with the world, and the problem with the world is me. And then there's parts that I've left out here, but he says, since I was a kid, you know I've caused a lot of hurt but no one taught me how to put myself first. It came so very naturally. I'm not a prodigy, no. So everybody's wondering how the world could get this way. If God is good, then how it could be filled with so much pain. It's not the age-old mystery we've made it out to be. Yes, there's a problem with the world, and the problem with the world is me. So I will look no further than a mirror. That's where the offender hides. So great is my need for a redeemer. I cannot trust myself. No, I cannot trust myself. I cannot trust myself, so I'll trust in someone else. In other words, Jesus. The sooner we can all sing along, the sooner that we can sing this song, the happier we will be. The problem with the world is me. So, that's kind of the downside. <laughs> So the first thing, humanity is corrupt. The second thing, I said there's four things. God is completely just. God demands justice. Never before in my lifetime have I seen the, the constant outcry for justice as we are seeing in our environment today. 
I don't question the majority of the wrongs that people have claimed have been done to them. The news is full of stories of injustices of all kinds, lawsuits, inquiries, strikes, protests, and claims uh, of made-up facts, and so on. Our world is clearly understands the need for and is desperate to see justice done. However, do we really fully understand who God is and what justice means? In 2 Chronicles 19.7, it says, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. God can't be bribed, and God is completely just. Galatians 6.7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever someone sows, that he will also reap. I found the following quote when doing my research that stated the following, a God who does not care about the difference between right and wrong and does not judge humans for acting one way or the other would not be an admirable being worthy of our love or trust. The fact that God is just and will judge between right and wrong gives ultimate moral significance to our lives and makes us accountable for our actions. The story doesn't end there, though. Um, Acts 17.31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, surprise, Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So we all have an appointment with Jesus someday who has been appointed the authority to judge all of us after we die, our physical death. What will justice look like? This verse suggests that there's hope since Jesus rose from the dead. Romans 6.23 states that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Based on this, justice for sin is spiritual death, but there's hope in this verse. Jesus offers a gift. The third thing that I came across that seemed evident to me is that God has given mankind free will. So the first thing, humanity is corrupt, God is just, but God has given mankind a free will. The question is often asked, why didn't God just make us so that we would not sin? Why did he create us with flaws? The implied flaw referred to here would be our free will. Our free will was not, however, our free will, I don't believe, was a mistake, nor do I believe that it was a flaw. Now, there's a lot of discussion in this world today about the Bible and whether we really have free will. I didn't, the purpose of this message is not to get into the whole discussion about this is a fancy word called predestination. And I know predestination is in the Bible, and people are, try to argue that because God made us and he knew, what, he knew what the future was, that he basically ultimately decided our fate even before we came on the scene. And my, I don't agree with that. I think that uh, even though God knows the future, that doesn't take away our free will to make a decision. We have the, the free will to decide what we're going to do with our lives. We have the free will to choose who we will follow and when we will follow that and to do what, to do what we will. But here's my, uh, here's my discussion on free will. Love must be given freely. Without coercion, coercion, or it is not love. If we were created without the capacity of free will, we would be robots. 
if we were created with the capacity of free will, but our choices were not our own, if they were forced, we would be slaves. God created us with the, the capacity to make choices, and those choices include whether or not we decide to believe God is who he said he is or to, to follow him. It's clear from the Bible that God wants our love. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, an expert in religious law tried to trap Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important. Jesus added this on his own because the the, the person of religious law didn't ask for this, but said, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So the one thing I'd say is it's clear that God desires our love. This may sound strange, what I'm about to say, but no command would be needed if there were no free will. However, does the fact that it's a command make it coerced? I don't see it that way. What a command does imply is that it is God's right to require our love in return. However, we are never forced to give it. We see that we have free will to, to be drawn into sin. In James 1.14 it states, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away in his own lust and enticed. We also have the free will and the capacity to approach God and make our requests known to him. And he says that he will respond when we do so. Matthew 7.7 7 states, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. You have the free will to approach God's throne. You have the free will, no matter where you are, on a street corner, in a bathroom, in your house, God's door is always open to you. You can talk to him anywhere, anytime. So, so far, those first three points have been hard. This is still a love story. And if I left it there, it would be very, it'd be very sad, and you would all be quiet like you are right now. <laughs> We'd be leaving this place with frowns on our faces. But God, the fourth point that I cannot miss is that God loves, loves us, and his love is amazing. And we have great value to him. So the first point, humanity is corrupt. We can't avoid that. God is completely just. God can't ignore justice. It can't go away. We have free will. We do have the ability to choose. This is not forced on us. And finally, God loves us, and we have great value to him. The Bible is clear that our sin separates us from God and that we can't pay the price required to pay for our sin for justice to be met. If we face Jesus in judgment without payment, then the judgment would be eternal separation from him, spiritual death. How can God exercise justice and perfect judgment and still be together, to be, be together with the people he created? How can this love story come to a happy ending? The answer is a substitute. Someone else had to pay the price and someone who had, to be, had the means to do so. In the Old Testament, we see the picture over and over again of sacrifices made by the Israelites as a substitute for their sins. 
The offering was always a spotless lamb. Why would they do this? Why would they sacrifice an animal? Why, why did it have to be a lamb and why was it spotless? The reason was that there had to be a payment for sin and that the payment had to be a life. The spotless lamb was a picture of Jesus Christ and was a foreshadow of the perfection and innocence of Jesus. What was needed for justice, this is what was needed for justice to be satisfied. Only Jesus could pay this price. This is why Jesus had to die. People can't pay the price. We weren't spotless and we weren't innocent. The price was too steep for us to pay and Jesus made a choice to offer his body as a living sacrifice once and for all. Notice that we don't sacrifice spotless lambs anymore. He was the perfect innocent substitute payment for us. John 3.16, a verse that people know very well, says, for God so loved the world, so, so God, for God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone that believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. So God loved us so much that he gave his son so that everyone that believes in him will not perish. There is a condition. You need to believe in him. Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And then as Jesus sat down at the Last Supper with his disciples, and shortly before he was to be crucified, he began to teach his disciples. So you can imagine some of the things that he taught. These were pretty critical things. This is just before he's going to be crucified. It's kind of the last instructions before he left. He said, This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. So Jesus was saying this, looking at his disciples. He was basically telling them, There is no greater love that you're going to witness than what I'm about to do for you. I love you. So the next question, um, why the punishment was so severe? Crucifixion was one of the most brutal forms of execution known to man and was a foreigner's execution. It was particularly distasteful if you were Israel, if you're from Israel, if you were Jewish. It was a Roman execution just for historical facts. It was instituted by the Roman Empire. And of course, the Roman Empire was oppressing um, the, the nation of Israel at that time. The severity of the punishment that Jesus had to endure was described in the Bible 700 years before Jesus was crucified by the prophet Isaiah. It wasn't just physical. It says, he was this, Isaiah 53, verses 3 to 6, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. And then it goes on to say the reason for its severe, it gives us a clue as to why the punishment was severe as it was. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
The punishment that, was, that brought peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then in John, one of the three closest disciples of Jesus, he wrote in 1 John 2.2, He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So I can't actually say for sure if the severity of what Jesus suffered was related to the magnitude of the sins, but I believe it was. It sounds to me that Jesus was taking on the sins of the whole world. Why crucifixion? I don't see that the Bible... I could be wrong. Somebody can come up and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I don't see that the Bible actually foretells or explains why Jesus died specifically by the way of crucifixion. But a few things are clear, and this, is, this was uh, noted in the book that we read in our Bible study. The crucifixion was one of the most public and prolonged means of execution available. There are very few historical scholars that are credible that would deny the crucifixion of Christ as a factual historical event, given how well it is documented and how well it was witnessed. The cross is also a symbol that few can mistake for its meaning. Let me ask you, as a North American, we know the marketing genius of a popular North American fast food chain that puts big yellow arches up in the sky. If you have a, a child, even that's five years old, you know if they see the golden arches, they know that there's a McDonald's close by. Same thing goes with that symbol when you see that cross. And anybody that knows Rebecca, who has a cross tattooed on her face, you know what that symbol means. And even people that have not grown up in the Christian faith and Christian background, when they see that cross, not saying that they necessarily understand the significance of it, but they do know what that cross means. God is a marketing genius. There's no mistaking that Jesus came and he died, that he was crucified. However, the story doesn't end there. This love story would be sad if Jesus didn't rise. If Jesus stayed in the grave, the ending would have been bad for all of us. In the Gospels of the Bible, we read accounts of Jesus appearing to many people. He appeared to Mary Magdalene and the other women with her, Cleopas and other disciples who were not part of the, the 12 disciples, and the 11 disciples except Judas, Judas who had died, saw Jesus, and James, the half-brother of Jesus, also saw him, saw him. We also learn from Paul, who wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, how there were 500 other eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus all at once most of whom were still alive at the time Paul wrote this letter. It appears probable that Paul had met some of these people. Finally, Paul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus on his way to drag Christians to jail. And for some, likely, uh, I think I messed up what I wrote here, but, um, but Paul basically encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, this was after he was risen from the dead, and I don't want to get into great details about that, but basically, that encounter changed Paul's life. Paul, at that point in his life, 
was dragging Christians to jail, some of them probably to be executed. And that turning point in his life changed him dramatically, overnight. Um, he turned from a person who was persecuting Christians to a person who was proclaiming Christ as alive and as being risen from the dead. The interesting thing, too, that you might not realize is that James, the half-brother of Jesus, really did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. And here we see this testimony of Jesus appearing to James, his half-brother, and in our Bible, the book of James, written by Jesus' half-brother, clearly James changed his mind. He recognized Jesus as the Son of God. This was a, someone he had grown up with from a little boy. So, but if it is... In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes on to say, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, in other words, died in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul makes an argument that the resurrection is real. And there's many debates, people in this world today, that debate, did Jesus really rise from the dead? The person that witnessed Jesus was around when Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, makes this argument. Jesus was risen from the dead, and we have a choice to make, whether we believe it or we don't. I want to share a personal story. Um, again, I'm going back to movies. You can tell I like movies. There was a movie that was made a number of years ago by Mel Gibson. You know, you all probably know who Mel Gibson is. He's a crazy character. Um, Mel gets into a lot of trouble. Um, he says a lot of things that are not great. Um, but I will give him credit. He's a fantastic actor, and he is an amazing director. And uh, I have no idea. I know he, he has some sort of faith background, although I'm not sure what exactly it is, but he decided to produce and direct this movie, The Passion of the Christ, and I'll tell you, it's obvious to me that he did not make this movie in order to make money, and he did not make that movie in order to entertain people. I went with my brother-in-law because I was obviously curious. I'd never seen anything produced like this, and I knew Mel Gibson having the means that he had that he probably could put on quite a, quite a movie. And uh, I was curious, although skeptical, that he could pull this off, that he could actually do a story about the resurrection of Christ and give it the credence that it required. So anyhow, I showed up at movie theater in Smith Falls, and there was probably a total of six people in the whole theater. Not very, it wasn't a big draw. And uh, 
I sat there with my brother-in-law. There was two guys just in front of us off to the left, and there was a couple people at the back. And as I watched this movie, and as it got further and further in, I started... I can say that my heart has never been pierced like that before. Getting all emotional, sorry. <laughs> um, I had grown up in church, and I'd heard the story, the stories and read the Bible accounts of how Jesus died on the cross and he was led off to be crucified. And you know, I have to say that you can read something many times and, and you can believe it intellectually. And I accepted Christ into my heart as in charge of my life. But until I saw it portrayed the way it was portrayed, it, it didn't hit me. There was a lot of strange things in that movie that I, you know, I'm, I don't know. I mean, he had, to take, he had to take some liberties because we don't have all the details. I mean, the, the presentation of Lucifer was kind of interesting, but, but uh, a little bizarre. And the demon things going on, that's maybe a little bit off there. But the whole progression of Jesus paying the price As I sat there, I thought, am I going to be able to hold it together till the end of the movie? I had to turn my face away, and I can say that my heart was pierced like it had never been before. And this is anybody who thinks God can't use anything, man. God used Mel Gibson to, to prick my heart. And... And I can remember, as I'm sitting there and the movie ended, the last scene is basically Jesus has risen. There's not a lot given to that, but it is, it is there. And the, of course, the credits start rolling. And I remember sitting there, trying to hold it together, and I heard the guy in front of me saying, I don't get it. <laughs> and it, and it dawned on me that there's people in this world that don't get it. We need to share. And I'm pointing at myself, too, when I say that. We need to share our faith. And if you're sitting here and you don't know who Jesus Christ is, or if you know who he is in your head, but you haven't made that decision in your heart, you need to make that decision. This is a love story. And if you've missed it, this isn't just about God judging you. This is God loving you. He loves you. I'm not done yet. I think we're running close to the end of time. But Jesus died for us to save us from spiritual death. Is that it then? My sin is paid for and I'm good with God? The Bible describes how we need to be spiritually reborn. So in case you're wondering, well, how do I do this? And it's not a formula, but this helps. John 3.3 says, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. How is this done? By putting Jesus Christ in charge of your life. Jesus paid for our sins and is alive. Romans 10.9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. Salvation is not something we can earn. It is a gift. And we see this in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. God saved you by grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so no one, not one of us can boast about it. A story was used to illustrate human effort to please God, and it illustrates what trying to earn God's favor would be like. A young man became very ill with a serious disease that would eventually cause his lungs to not function anymore. He was informed by the medical experts that without a lung transplant, he would die. The process began to search for a donor. His sister was tested and found to be a match. She loved her brother, and while scared and nervous about the possibility of surgery like this, she was thrilled that she could help save her brother. When her brother found out his sister was a match, she was happy that a match had been found, but he had always been a self-reliant, self-made man. He had always pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He didn't want to receive any charity, so he decided he would accept the lung from his sister, but only on one condition. Did she accept $1,000 in repayment? He figured if he paid for the lung, he wouldn't owe her any favors. It would be his lung, and he would have earned it. It's not hard to see how the young man is so far off the mark. But is this so different than trying to earn God's favor by our own good things that we do? Colossians 1.13, I'm almost at the end. Colossians 1, sorry, Colossians 1, 1 to 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died spiritually, or sorry, you died to yourself, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, I want to add, too, we, we sang some songs here, and I noticed this, um, some of the songs that Sharon uh, and uh, Jordy had sang. And this is not just about saving yourself for after you die, but it's salvation here on earth, too. Um, Jesus, it says in the Bible that Jesus came that we might have life, and we might have it more abundantly. And that's, just, that's not just for after. Jesus came to change your life now. And I got through all this, and I returned back to the story of Zacchaeus that uh, Amy read. Zacchaeus was a changed life, and it was evidenced by his reaction when he was with Jesus. God wants to do that with you. All right. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that this message would accomplish what it sets out to do. Lord, you promise that you, your words will not return void, but they'll do exactly what they're meant to do. I pray that if there's anybody here in this room that doesn't know you, but they want, they want to know what this is about, or if they're ready, if they're ready to ask to have Jesus be in charge of their life, Lord, that you would you would move them now to not wait on that decision. And Lord, if there's anybody here that's not sure, if they're not sure about exactly what it is that you did and why you did it, Lord, I pray that you would uh, 
give them the courage to come and speak uh, to someone here and to, to share that. And uh, Lord, I pray that you will bless the rest of this service as we finish off in Jesus' name. Now, as we keep our eyes closed, I'm going to ask that some people go to the back. Um, there's some people like, I'm going to ask Andy and Leazardo, and if there's others there that feel led, that you would be at the back and be ready. And if there's anybody here that wants to make that decision, or it doesn't have to be that, but if you are feeling like the Spirit is, the Spirit of God's pulling you, or if you feel that tug, please don't hold off. I pray that you would, I ask that you would go back and speak to someone. And it doesn't have to be here. I encourage you to do it now. But if you want to speak to myself or, or um, to Amy or, or someone else uh, that you trust, that you would do that um, after this service as well if you don't do it now. Or if you just want prayer, if there's a need, a special need that you have, I pray that you would, I, I keep saying pray, I ask that you go back and you speak to someone and, and that you would have, you would pray with them. Um, so anyhow, um, while the musicians are playing, um, I, I'm going to ask you to do that at this time. Thank you.